0: Welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge, with Richard Helpe. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. And welcome back to The Common Bridge. We're in the eighth week of the coronavirus, so just like the previous eight weeks, we're essentially doing this podcast over the phone. Rich, how you been? We're not in the same place, but uh, it's always great talking to you. Uh, How's it
1: going? Brian, I think under the circumstances, pretty well. Uh, Of course, I miss seeing my family as often uh, in person, and I miss interacting with the people are involved in both the philanthropic part of our life and the remaining uh, business. Uh, but I, I think, you know, we're getting through this. And of course, you know, as an older American, we uh, have uh, some advantages and some disadvantages. Um, but, uh, you know, there's lots of creativity going on. And I'd like, I'd like to also promote the uh, live concerts that are being streamed on YouTube uh, by um, our uh, a local uh, celebrity, Jeff Daniels, uh, if you haven't seen Jeff's show live, it's a great chance to see it, then um, it's all free uh, as a fundraiser for the Purple Rose Theater. Um, there are lots of other um, entertainment and food venues, and I just really think it speaks to the uh, creativity of the country that we live in
0: rich locally in our home state here of Michigan, particularly in Lansing, we've seen a lot of turmoil. It's got some national coverage as well. So do you think that this is all coming down on maybe the Democrats are making this more about health and the Republicans are making this more about the economy? What kind of things are you seeing out there that are causing this kind of turmoil? And and frankly, do you agree with it?
1: Well, I just don't agree with the premise of the question or that that kind of divide. And I look at this at at a broader level, and I probably should have warned you about this before we got on today, but I, I really believe that if we don't get a pivot to civil conversation, we will go to a civil war. And if I have any talents, it's about being able to synthesize a lot of inputs and say if something's tracking in a direction, what's the next logical step? And frankly, I don't like it. I'm hearing an increasing othering and and folks referring to other members of uh, our society as those people and saying things like, well, we ought to ban them or, hey, don't listen to them, or making inflammatory and derogatory statements. And the, the tragedy is that we could have healing moments for dialogue, but I just see this further descent into division. And left to its conclusion, it'll end in a civil war instead of a civil dialogue. And, and look, I think there are people from all sides of the political spectrum that want something Different, and and I want to say with, you know, good purpose, not because they think they can't win a division, but I remember several years ago, then President Barack Obama was addressing the graduates at the University of Michigan. Yeah, I remember that. One of our daughters. Yeah, he was. One of our daughters was graduating uh, from uh, School of Education that year, and President Obama he spoke to the the grads and the guests. The crowd was so large, they had to have it in the big house. You know, the football stadium was the venue. And he he pleaded with everyone to seek broad and diverse sources of information and opinion. And if memory serves me correctly, he suggested both Rush Limbaugh and the Huffington Post, along with major newspapers and news channels that he named. In contrast to that, we have people that are being valued and devalued based on how the partisans can use them and how the eyeball and click-hungry news outlets are inflaming them. And, you know, we can have policy differences. And I'm sure that, you know, President Obama and President Bush had policy differences Yet, I don't recall them attacking the voters of the other party. And I don't remember Senator McCain and then, you know, President nominee Obama attacking the voters. And so that really concerns me. Because policy differences can get resolved, but once you start going after people or institutions or basic fairness or even handedness, it can't end in anything other than a catastrophe. We should be having some civil conversations, and if not agreement, around four things. So so first okay. of all, how do we deal with the pandemic and all of its implications. That needs to be nonpartisan. Uh, you know, data's coming in. Secondly, we've had Joe Biden, presumptive nominee. You know, Brett Kavanaugh contrasted it with that, the Me Too movement, you know, and the overhang around the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. And the differences in the treatment are stark and astonishing. We should be able to get to some common method of treatment and fairness. We've also had this uh, rolling revelation about the conduct of our own FBI and our Department of Justice, and if there's anything we need to agree on. It's equal treatment under the law and non-political law enforcement. You you know the implications of one-party states that control the spying mechanisms and the law enforcement. And then also integrity of voting. We all share in making sure that we have a voting system that includes everyone makes it easy for people to vote once and 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 not and not more than that, um, and, and I think that's within reach but I don't hear much discussion about this. But anyway, in each of these four things, the pandemic, the Biden-Kavanaugh, Me Too, the FBI, the Department of Justice, Integrity of Voting, these are things we should truly be together in. And in each of these, I see examples of conduct, it can only be explained away by hoping that one would always be in power. So you wouldn't be able to say certain things about any of these topics unless you believed you and the people that you affiliate with were always going to be in power. You'd never want the shoe to be on the other foot. So look, as an internal optimist, I'm really hoping we can move off the partisan and the emotional reactions and move towards some thoughtful consideration and just some even-handed fairness. Now, just start talking to each other in a civil way. But Rich, how do we
0: get there? I keep getting back to the theme of the common bridge That was your idea a long time ago to start talking or try to bring both sides to the middle or the middle of the ring, as it were. And both sides are really staying in their own corners. Uh, How do you get each other to listen to the other side?
1: Well, I I think that, you know, for the common bridge, it's keeping the brand promise. And the brand promise is that each episode, we're going to have someone, something for everyone to dislike. So no matter where you come from politically (laughs) or. Otherwise, expect to come here uh, to find something that you dislike. And I work really hard to make sure that that happens. Well,
0: you must be doing something right, Rich, because the mailbag suggests you're upset. Yeah. Okay. good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and people, you know, send me notes and messages along the way. (laughs) And I make sure they understand if you look, if you want to demagogue, ideologue, uh, hyperpartisan, there's lots of places you can go. For that, you can pick your newspaper based on that. You can pick your cable news outlet, uh, and so forth. By that, again, President Obama said at the time, "Hey, you might go listen to Rush Limbaugh, but also, hey, go read the Huffington Post and vice versa." All right. Um, if you stay in one of those camps, you're only going to get one outcome. And again, I believe that the way we change this is that we demand better behavior from those that we elected and a better product from the people who are supposed to be reporting to us. Now, look, I am not a a deeply educated scholar, um, but I am told that I have lots of people that I, I know that I go to when I need to know different things? Uh, Of course you do. And I'm told that Socrates spoke of the virtue of intellectual excellence, and that hope was centered on the belief that the mission and the virtue of excellence in education, called paideia, was the training of great leaders who were, listen to this, morally responsible for guiding the citizens whom Socrates thought were too easily swayed and tricked by demagogues who knew how to manipulate the masses. Socrates believed it takes a real captain to guide the ship. Well, that's really powerful. I believe it is, too. And the sad part is this. Half the populace seems to think the other half is being swayed and tricked by a demagogue, but cannot see how they themselves are also being misled. Yeah, right. And that's why we get the results that we have today. A deeply divided country, an unresponsive government, and a media industry that fosters the emotions over reason. And when you take those elements to its logical conclusion, it is indeed civil war. Well, you know, prior to the civil war, there were
0: a lot of farmers in the north who were upset about the free labor market. And, um, you know, it wasn't so altruistic, right? So, you know, they were all labeled as abolitionists, and that was great. But that wasn't really necessarily the case. So you had two sides dividing.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. So let's, let's look at the Civil War. So the slavery of other human beings. We can and should all agree it is wrong. It's an absolute. And yet at that time in 1860, there was such rancor about that. It got down to canings in the U.S. Senate. That's
0: right. Charles Sumner got whacked.
1: But beyond that, all of the states that seceded negatively mentioned Abraham Lincoln's election in their articles of causes or declaration of causes about why they were leaving the the union. The the notion of not my president is not without precedent.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Georgia, specifically, their Declaration of Causes says this. The party of Lincoln, called the Republican Party, under its president name and organization, is of recent origin. It is admitted to be an anti-slavery party. And Georgia says, and look, the material prosperity of the North is greatly dependent on the federal government. And that of the South, not at all. So we're leaving. And in terms of swaying public opinion, Mississippi, in its declaration of clauses, said, it has enlisted its press, its pulpit, and its schools against us until the whole popular mind of the North is excited and inflamed with prejudice. Now, you can take what Georgia was saying at the time about the duly elected president Mm -hmm. and what Mississippi was saying that, hey, you're all lined up against me and you're inflaming prejudice against my very essence and overlay where we are today. And yet at that time, as you pointed out, that there were northerners who looked at this cynically, but all of the Southern states had union loyalists and they mostly were made up of either mountain people or small farmers, those people that did not own slaves. They were more in favor of a policy of freedom. Mm -hmm. So at least in that war, we had a cause and we had a policy that people were for against, again, slavery primarily, some states' rights. But now we have people against people, President Trump is duly elected, and there's demonstrations not against the policy. As you know, like for example, we experienced growing up uh, during the Vietnam War, it's a policy that people demonstrated against, wanted our government to change. People wanted to protest the results of a duly elected government. And that gets me into, you know, when I think about the election itself, we do not have to deal with false choices. And a false choice is Trump versus Biden. Republican versus Democrat um, you know hey if you don't vote for you know one or the other you're to you know vote for whomever the speaker is is opposing right we hear that all the time yeah we have ballots and we have voices to demand both better candidates and better behavior from those we elect to serve so we all need to show up and vote but we don't need to feel compelled to vote for either
0: so in your opinion has the environment been set up perfectly to finally get us to a viable third party?
1: Well, look, that's a tall question, and there has been times in our history where third parties have done rather well. But today, a third party would only make sense if there was a chance of winning 270 electoral college votes. Look, the the Democrats and Republicans have entrenched themselves uh, and used laws to make it difficult for a third party. So right now, you look at the two largest of or the most prominent of the third parties the libertarians and the green party. Mm-hmm. As of today I looked it up this morning. The libertarian is on the ballot in 35 states plus the wa- plus Washington DC and they're going to try to get on all 50 this year. The green party is on the ballot in 22 states, but that is half of the 44 they had in the last election cycle. But the issue is this, Brian, the Republican and Democrat control boards of elections in the states, set the requirements for ballot access. And guess what? <laughs> well, that's
0: convenient, isn't
1: it? it yeah, right, because it requires signatures on petitions. We have coronavirus rules that are thwarting that and, and running out the clock. So oh. a you know, could a, a platform like a Libertarian or a Green Party get on the ballot in all 50 states and, and elect a unity ticket that wouldn't be in keeping with their more ideological view of the world? That's a long way to get there. Yeah, and if you re- you recall, Donald Trump was sought as a candidate from the party that Ross Perot had founded. Yeah, that's right. And and what Trump concluded back then, he said that you have to run as a Democrat or a Republican to win. And remember, Trump is not a party guy.
0: No, not at, at all. all. Yeah,
1: at all. And he, I'm sure, he would have run on the Democrat ticket if he thought he could win there. Now. You and I both were, you know, active uh, during the last time there was a strong third party. That was in 1992. I remember that well. And the results of having that third party in there, the results of the election were changed. Well,
0: absolutely.
1: Absent absent Ross Perot, George H.W. Bush would have won the Electoral College in a landslide. Absolutely. But Perot took off enough votes to swing it to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton got 46% of the popular vote, Bush and Perot got fifty three point two percent of the popular vote. But the end result is that we got a Democrat versus a sitting Republican president at that time.
0: And we never would have heard of Hillary Clinton, and the giant sucking sound would have been steeped in
1: irony. Oh, oh so not on. touching. Okay, let's <laughs> let, we. we <laughs> Okay. And that concludes, no, that won't won't conclude. Let's go, let's go on to the (laughs) coronavirus. Fair
0: enough, fair enough. Let's talk about the coronavirus. So when this started out, the idea was to have everybody shelter in place so that there's not an explosion of cases that overwhelms the health system. Uh, But now there's a lot of empty hospital beds. A lot of the triage units that we set up aren't being used at all. Do you think now that the argument then goes to reopening the economy? I don't. I know you don't like that phrase, but what do you think we should do now going forward?
1: Well, you've got a, a lot of questions in there. Let's let's kind of back up to the first time we talked about COVID nineteen, and uh, at that time we said, look, there's more unknowns than knowns, and let's hope the conversation that we're having in a month or two. Is did we do too much versus oh no, we didn't do enough? So there, there's the first headline. And today, there are still more unknowns than knowns. Uh, the data is coming in, it's largely encouraging. And let me just touch on a little bit of that. First of all, the good news is that the healthcare industry has rallied. I hope the listeners got to hear Brian Peters talk about what was going on. And now we have the capacity to deal with the outbreak. And certainly, it's look, it's the combination of policies to prevent the spread and relentless resupply. And that's had a good result for the moment. Now, people on the front line are exhausted, as you would expect, and hospital finances have been wrecked. But make no mistakes, lives have been saved from. COVID-19 deaths. And and this could have been one of America's, you know, frankly finest moments where we put our differences aside and unite like we did on September 12, 2001. But we're starting to see, you know, around the coronavirus some bad behavior. We've seen rescue packages loaded with pork. We've seen yet another attempt to reward high incomes by repealing the limits on the state and local taxes. We see states looking to resolve their pre-existing financial problems on the back of the coronavirus, but we've also seen some good news. Workers are coming to the forefront from Amazon warehouses to meatpacking plants that workers are saying, wait a minute, you need to treat us better for health and safety and better working conditions. Yet, I've seen pundits okay expressing disdain for workers without college degrees and the way that they're voting, and yet at the same time, praising our frontline workers who drive trucks, work in grocery stores, and the like. And as I'm reading and watching this, I'm saying, don't they understand? Those are the same people. You tell me I'm essential, I'm a hero, and I'm going to work every day. And then you tell me you think I'm too dumb to know who to vote for. And all I can conclude is that your political view is coloring how you value me. And, and look, I, there, there's a Professor Levitt from Stanford. I've watched some of his YouTube videos over the weekend. He gives really good analysis on COVID-19 statistics. He had been on CNN. He went on Fox News. Now CNN won't have him back because he appeared on Fox. So, <laughs> like, so, again, it's one set of numbers. You, you know, it seems like we all should listen to them. Yeah. And, and uh, the infection rate numbers, which, I, which I've, I've got a little data on here I, I'll share with you, Um, I did some analysis myself, but there's no doubt that now that COVID-19 is perhaps on the downside, perhaps for this wave, that we have an enormous public health cost to these stay-at-home orders or lockdowns, however you want to frame them. You heard Milt Mack talk about suicides, domestic violence alcohol consumption. We now know that addictions and other medical conditions are being left untreated, including heart attacks, cancers, and even appendicitis.
0: I've heard that too.
1: I don't want to go to the the, the ER. and ambulance runs in one of our major systems here locally, they have four times the number of runs to pick up deceased people. So when people talk about reopening the economy, the economy, again, is a thing that serves us. It's not a goal in and of itself, but it's it's a means of you know making sure that we're ho- housed and fed and educated and transported in, in the best way possible. And we're paying a terrible public health cost at this point. And, but you also, you look, we have people who have spent decades building a business. They're getting wiped out in a few months. And look, I can tell you, as look, I've been a startup entrepreneur, and the amount of effort that it's required to do that, if you're a 20-something or a 30-something and you're energized versus trying to do that as a 60-something. So, so you got a small dry cleaner built a business with sweat and sacrifice, and now maybe looking at an old age with extreme want. And, and, and more currently, we've got you know Airbnb entrepreneurs that suddenly have their entire business dried up. Yeah, and so when we look at this social carnage, all the this the public health costs that I, that I just mentioned, and these economic costs, which will ripple into public health costs, can't get people to focus on the numbers. So a little more than a week ago, I took apart the CDC.gov numbers and went into some state health department numbers. Uh, this was on April twenty, and I, I calculated that based on the ratio of reported cases. Versus actual cases, that the fatality rate is someplace between 0.26% or 0.001%.
0: Rich, that's lower than
1: influenza. It, it, it is. And, and look at the high side, it, it could be as much as 1.65%. Okay. Now, again, bear bear in mind, these numbers are impacted by people getting treatment and by the pace. But what we know today is this. If you're under the age of 45 and you don't have any underlying health issues, if you become infected, the most likely outcome, you're never going to know. You're not going to have symptoms. The next most likely outcome, you're going to have some symptoms, but you're not going to require medical attention. Right. And the next most likely outcome is you're going to get infected, need some medical attention, and recover. So you have to say, is is our policy right now where we had to hit it with a sledgehammer, should the party, policy now be something like, If you're under 45, you don't have underlying health issues, and you're not going to be around people that are aged or have underlying health issues, maybe you can go back to teaching school. Maybe you can go back to work. And there's growing coverage of this notion that you know Bill Gates center front and center on this that what we need is more centralized control and surveillance, and gosh, maybe certificates of recovery and vaccination if you want to travel, and we'll have apps on your phone to track your movement. And who you've been near? Yeah, oh boy. Yeah, yeah. And right now, there's not a vaccine developed, but gosh, let's all go out and get one. Well,
0: Rich, what about the economic front? Any good news out there at all?
1: Absolutely. Look, the uh, the economic engine, you know, free market, capitalistic economies demonstrates why and how it works. Note that Venezuela didn't spool up to supply the world, but the the, the companies inside of these capitalist economies have been able to pivot to make needed goods and to, to meet demand mm-hmm. and I don't know maybe it's a cautionary part of this recall that the governor of New York asked for 60,000 ventilators yeah and he he didn't need it was play New York I mean that's how New York works right you need 500 or something you think you're going to be hard to get you order two thousand hope you get the 500 maybe get an extra 500 that you can trade that's just that's just New York being New York but it re- that's what a, in under a centralized command and control economic a lot of resources would have been developed to that production and and i recall when the soviet union was in existence that they were talking about a manager of a factory that made nails and when they gave the manager an incentive by tonnage the factory produced enormous nails like spikes right <laughs> yeah and they said well and they said well we're going to we, we really want to get it incented by volume, well, they start coming out looking like thumbtacks right right and and, and that's the, the the beauty of the capitalist system that there has to be a willing consumer on the other side of that production, and if there's not, that that production capacity ceases and it gets repurposed for something else it's It's called creative destruction and and p s that's one of the reasons that healthcare economics don't work in a purely free market economy. And I've spoken about this on other times.
0: Rich, you and I have talked about New York, uh, the state of New York and its influence and, and whether or not it's a bellwether for the rest of the country. And there's an interesting story that came out this week that said that New York has a high paid lobbyist in Washington, DC. And there seems to be a direct correlation between that investment and the return on investment that New York is seeing from some of the first wave of, um, of financial aid uh, well into the billions, well outpaces a lot of other cities and states. What are your thoughts about that and um, you know, marking every death as a COVID death in order to get those numbers up? And it looks like New York is really pushing that envelope uh. You know, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, all I'll say about that is this. We can't base n- national policy on the special conditions of New York any more than we could base tax policy on an outlier like Paris Hilton or someone like that. New York is New York, and it's a place unto itself. I think we need to support New York. It's part of the United States of America. But y- you can't base our national policies um, on what's going on in New York.
0: Rich, let's talk a little bit about the protests. I know you're an advocate for First Amendment rights. That goes without question. But tell us a little bit about how you feel about these protests in Lansing. Um, are they ill-advised? Uh, what are your thoughts on that?
1: On a broad scale, Americans have a right to peaceable assembly, um, a right to petition our government, and a right to protest. And hopefully it's about a policy that could be changed. And, and I do notice that, that there's been protesters at st- state capitals and elsewhere that are protesting a policy. Uh, they're not protesting a person or an election result. You know, most of them have a legitimate point of view. Mm-hmm. But, you know, look, of course, in any gathering, there's always knuckleheads. And, you know, we've seen the highly publicized pictures of protesters with these rifles slung over their shoulders. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at this, and I'm going, really? <laughs> For what? I mean. Let's count the ways that's idiotic, all right? And I won't get them all here because of in the interest of time. First of all, how are you going to find a safe shot in that mass of people, okay? You're talking about a, you know, a very high-powered weapon where that bullet travels a long way. Sure. And, and all right, who are you planning to shoot, okay? And, and here's the other logic. If you really, truly feared the government You wouldn't make yourself the number one target by carrying a rifle, right? Because we know rules of engagement is you take out the highest threat first. And guess what? You've got state police sharpshooters who can call the corner of the postage stamp they're going to shoot from hundreds of yards away, okay? If they wanted you down, you're down, okay, fatally. So, I mean, I don't don't get it, but, you know... So maybe someone needs to explain that to me. I hope a listener emails me and says, "This is why we needed to carry a rifle." I, I don't know. Like, might as well carry a bullseye on your head. I, I don't. Know. Look, the Democrats and I tried to get one of the guys that actually signed this on the show. He said he was coming, and, and I haven't heard from him since then. Is uh, they censored a member, an elected member of their own party? And here was her crime: she had a case of coronavirus. And it responded to chloroquine. And she gave credit to President Trump for making her aware of it. And they, like, came down on her for not supporting her party. That was right here in Detroit. It's like, oh, what's the alternative? And, you know, and I watch people go long and hard about, well, this drug chloroquine is not effective or it's dangerous. And I'm thinking, well, we've been using it for a long time Mm -hmm. for lots of things. And as of last week, the FDA commissioner, Stephen Hahn, Dr. Stephen Hahn, uh, said there are many tests going on, and he said there were, quote, double-digit number of tests, so he wasn't specific on the uh, number. But he said that there were two areas that were looking promising. One of them was early stage of the infection, uh, and the other was actually prophylactically, so prevention. Mm -hmm. So, again, one of those unknowns in a... You know, vast sea of unknowns that we just we don't know how much how this stuff works. You know, what type of patients it works for? Does it work for anybody? We just we're still trying to figure that out. Sure. Yeah. And look, at, of course, we've all heard the news that Remdesivir has been approved for experimental use. Okay, and that its maker, Gilead Sciences, they've donated their entire stock that they have today—one of and a half million doses—to the federal government. But look, in the meantime, everybody, please wash your hands. Practice safe social distancing. A mask is not a bad idea. I, I was with some folks over the weekend. One of the guys had a, a N95 mask on that he'd gotten from construction work, and I said, "Well, it's great you're wearing this, but we're staying six feet apart." And he said, "No. He said this is helping my seasonal allergies. I, if I have this on, I don't have to take Claritin." <laughs> so, so we've discovered this along the way. So. Good for him, right? So,
0: Rich, let's talk about the Me Too movement or the uh, the vanishing of the Me Too movement, the former Me Too movement. Tell us a little bit about what you think about uh, Joe Biden, how it compares to Kavanaugh, and is he being treated fairly?
1: All right, well, look, I'm going to step back and look at the broad strokes of the election in just one or two ways to begin this. A little reported story is that the state of New York canceled its primary. And they canceled the primary and they handed the delegates to Joe Biden. Now, Bernie Sanders would have done pretty well in the state of New York. And Bernie Sanders has said his intent is to continue to gather delegates to influence the party at the convention. Okay? Yeah. Bernie's a little annoyed that he's not getting that chance. And I'm watching this and going, who is advising the establishment of the Democrat National Committee do they think they can again diss the the folks that have supported Senator Sanders? And and so when I think about advisors, I wanna who is advising Joe Biden to run on a platform of being America's moral leader? I mean, look, he's got a, and I'll be facetious about this, a hands-on style of dealing <laughs> well with well played. Well played. Yeah, he's He's look he he you go back over his record, he look he sold his Delaware house to a banking executive for an over-the-market valuation. He has his son getting jobs at banks and getting overpaid, his son getting millions off the Chinese while he was a vice president, and then you have (laughs) Brisman and Bill I mean there's a there's a million ways to do a platform. Sure, sure. Joe Biden is the moral compass. I, I just think the attack surface is way too
0: great. So what about Me Too? In 2017, I bought in hook, line, and sinker. I was wrong. They were right. I'm in. And now I'm upset because now I think it's steeped in hypocrisy.
1: Uh, first of all, the tr- you know, treatment of women has not been good, and, and we are making uh, incremental improvements, and the, uh, you know, the process continues. and. You know I think the you know leaving Harvey Weinstein out of it mm-hmm. um, for for the moment um, but when you look at the two people that are have been most prominent, this Joe Biden and Brett Kavanaugh, if you look at the underlying facts, there's only four possible outcomes uh, they're both guilty, they're both innocent and victims of false accusations, or mm-hmm. one is guilty and the other a victim or or you know, or vice versa right yeah. but The the broader looks the treatment of both cases. There were over seven hundred articles and columns written about Brett Kavanaugh and thousand media mentions. And this is the story that this virgin, who was aged fifteen to seventeen at the time, depending on which story his accuser was telling that day, attempted a rape at an unknown place and later went on to be involved in serial rape parties while in college. And this drumbeat of certain guilt continued while corroborating witnesses that the accuser provided flat out said they didn't either know nothing about it or she's wrong. Compare that to the sc- scant coverage of a 51 year old senator, again with that handsy reputation, having committed, by his own definition, sexual violence on a young woman in his employ. And that the reporting victim made contemporary reports to several people, including her mother. And listen to the New York Times defense of their coverage. Why did they delay two weeks to report on Joe Biden? Well, executive editor Dean Beckett, who's again been recorded as thinking his mission is to destroy this current president, said that Kavanaugh was part of a running hot story who was a figure who was already in the public forum in a long way. But how is Joe Biden not a running hot story who's in the public eye? I mean, it's just, come on. Um, and look, if, if Biden was a student under his own rules that Tara Reed could file a claim of assault, Biden would have no right to know the specifics, the evidence that was provided, who was charging him, who was a witness, and no right to question the accuser. And if, again, applying Biden standards, a college administrator would decide the issue in private, judge, jury, executioner, okay? And so if you remember the solemn-faced senators and the pious reporters, I wanna say smearing, but I'm treating Justice Kavanaugh under this banner of absolutism, believing all women, even when there's not only zero, evidence and conflicting information Mm -hmm. there's it's really inexplicable how Joe Biden was treated so it again speaks to we will continue to get that kind of reporting as long as we consume it and and that's what we need to do so what
0: did you think of Mika Brzezinski's interview of Joe Biden last week on the Scarborough show
1: I think she did a pretty fair. I think she did a pretty fair job. I was encouraged uh, by that. I did watch it start to finish as it was live. She did try several ways uh, to pin Mr. Biden down uh, to a commitment to search the records that he has stored at the University of Delaware. I mean, she went at that several different ways. Never worked. She could have made it a little stronger, maybe by you know running the clips of the Senator Biden pressing Anita Hill during the Clarence Thomas hearings. Oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, you probably would have got a Pulitzer Prize for journalism if she used the Title IX reforms that I just mentioned. I just feel bad for the women and all the people who have been used as tools in this when the right answer would be an even-handed policy, you know, and, and then let people decide for themselves. if sure. sure. Brett Kavanaugh did, as a teenager, what? he was accused of doing, then you've got to, first of all, say, do you believe it? Second of all, does it affect whether he should sit on Springport? Court? Okay. Similarly, Joe Biden, do you believe it? And does it affect his ability to serve as president of the United States? But not to try to sh- shade it and and insult people's intelligence like that. And I don't know if you saw this lately, but <laughs> now they're trying to float the idea that the Bernie bros are the one that put the story out about Tara Reid for for Biden. And we know now that the Bernie bros never actually existed. It was a right, made-up right. Made thing. I mean, it, anyway, it's crazier. Why did we get on this topic anyway? This is a... I don't, oh, I, okay, I, you, you know, know why? Because if you believe either side, we end up in civil war.
0: Okay, <laughs> and let's talk a little bit about the FBI. You teased on that at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, that's in the news again, the FBI investigations. Um, after that, we'll go into voter integrity. But tell us a little bit about what you saw in the resurfacing of the, the memos that came out. Yeah, this okay.
1: week. look. And to that end, I think we need to get a real expert on this. And I've I've got some uh, calls out on this. But okay. in, look, February, uh, the judge in General Michael Flynn's sentencing postponed that that sentencing uh, on a charge of lying to the FBI. And the reason being that the uh, court was convinced that there was exculpatory evidence that the FBI had withheld. And now what we know is that the FBI, from their own records, showed that Jim Comey personally ordered a breach of protocol and sent agents to the White House, one of them, Peter Strzok, to interview the incoming national security advisor, General Michael Flynn. And one of the agents, Bill Priestep, in his notes, he says, well, what's the goal here? Is it the truth or to get him to say something we can charge him with or to get him fired?
0: Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's an actual and, quote. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It, it's like, wait a minute. When did we have the FBI trying to get people in an administration fired? And look, remember at the time, the FBI already knew that the entire premise of the Russian collusion story was false. They knew at that time that all of the Russian disinformation in this so-called SEAL dossier was fake. But it was used to spy on citizens and a candidate and to launch a two-year investigation knowing that the results would be no collusion. In James Comey's own words, he said, I took part of the Steele report so that a special prosecutor could be hired, and he got that. I would not want to see the candidacy of Joe Biden treated this way. I would not want to see the candidacy of Bernie Sanders treated this way. I wouldn't want to see the candidacy of Donald Trump being treated this way. And if, you know, whomever becomes president at the end of the next election, whether we reelect the president we have, or we we have a new president, the FBI's conduct is just outrageous. And we all benefit from an FBI, a Department of Justice, and intelligence services that are free of political pressures and biases. You know, I think we all want equal protection under the law. And if you want it, you have to give it. And as you look, I'm not a fan of this president. I don't believe that America said we want a guy like Donald Trump in the Oval Office. I don't think anybody said he's the best qualified person, but that doesn't excuse this kind of abuse like yeah, that. Brian, you mentioned you mentioned voter in- integrity, right? And I'm going to just go real quick here. Uh, voting by mail, um, some states use it. Uh, it's different than absentee voting. It is subject to fraud. And someone wants to know, well, how much fraud? It's like asking how many cases of coronavirus are there? Because if you're not testing you can't count, but I, I think the solution is simple. And I'm maybe I shouldn't be surprised that it's not being suggested. We could all have an app that has a unique identifier associated with it that takes a picture of the person casting the vote. Okay, or in Chicago, the headstone casting the vote. I'm just kidding about that. <laughs> um, the, uh, <laughs> no, the, uh, you didn't go the, there, <laughs> the, and and then you'd have the you know facial recognition databases that were all. Uh, exposed to anyway, and comparison to see if, you know, Rich Helpy's face was used to cast 26 ballots someplace.
0: Well, you and I agree on that. Anyway, the technology is there. We see it in the Absolutely. And, and,
1: and, and then the, the notion of, you know, disenfranchisement and such uh, is over for people that don't have access to devices and things. It's relatively inexpensive uh, to set up voting centers, and you're all voting off the same technology Everybody gets to cast a vote. It would make the uh, politicians have to respond to everybody, not hope for a low turnout election. It'd be it'd be really a a step in the right way for uh, democracy.
0: Okay, now let's wrap this up. This has been a great, great podcast. But um, to wrap this up, uh, how do we get out of this quagmire?
1: (laughs) Well, first of all, I'm kind of glad you like the word you use the word quagmire Um, I knew you would. That's what the Vietnam War became for us. Uh, And weirdly, some people are using the U.S. casualty count in Vietnam and the number of coronavirus deaths as a means of bashing people they don't like. But we do have to exit it. And um, I'll I'll use Socrates uh, once again, who said, listen to your common sense, not the rhetoric of leaders, Quit going by what people are telling you to think. What do your own experiences tell you? My experiences tell me that we have a generous and compassionate country and that we live up to those ideals every day. Don't let anybody drag us down.
0: And I think that's a, a, a nice way to end this podcast. Rich, as always, thanks a lot for your time today. Uh, take care of yourself, and we'll see you next week.
1: All right, Brian, I look forward to it. All right, you be good. Stay safe. Wash your hands. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast.
0: Recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.